virtual lecture with Professor John Fabritz, the final in a series of talks the uh, UCL Institute of the Americas Research Network has convened, has been convened this month to examine the long history of the coronavirus crisis. My name is Stephen Colbert, I'm a PhD candidate at the Institute. The purpose of this lecture series is to provide an initial historical overlapping crises that have given shape to our current moments. Today, it is my absolute pleasure that we can hear from such a globally prominent scholar on the history of the US law of epidemics. Professor John Fabian Witt is the Alan H. Duffy class of 1960 professor of law at Yale Law School. An internationally renowned legal historian, he's the author of innumerable books and articles, including the 2012 book Lincoln's Code, The Law of War in American History, which received the Bancroft Prize, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and was also a New York Times notable book. Most recently, he authored American Contagions, Epidemics and the Law from Smallpox to COVID-19, a compelling account of the nexus between law and infectious disease across the sweep of American history. It was published by Yale University Press last year and is available now. Uh, before I pass over to John, there's just one small bit of housekeeping. At the end of this lecture, we will have a brief Q&A for about 20 minutes or so. Uh, to ask a question, please either type it into the chat or uh, raise your hand and share your audio and video. And I will chair the Q&A, so I'll come to you when uh, it's your turn. Uh, so without further ado, I'll hand over to John. Great, Stephen. Thank you so much for um, for that warm introduction. You can you can hear me. I can't. I don't see anyone in this particular view that I have. Um, but uh, but unless Stephen interrupts, I'll imagine that that people can um, can hear me. It's really nice uh, uh, to be um, to to be virtually in London uh, today. Um, I'm really grateful to get the chance to talk to you about uh, a book that I that I wrote at the the dining room table in you know essentially in lockdown with my children doing virtual school on the other side. We, we, we called it our virtual coffee shop. Uh, it was an in-person coffee shop, just the coffee wasn't as good. Um, and I thought of it as a, as a first draft of, uh, of an American legal history of uh, epidemics and the law. Uh, and it produced this book, which came out um, this, past, uh, this past fall. And I'm delighted to tell you a little bit about what's uh, in the book, uh, some of the arguments that I developed in the book, and then also to begin to carry it forward. That is, uh, um, a lot has happened since I was writing down in the dining room, um, and a lot promises to happen in the, in the, coming, in the coming days. So here, here's what I thought I, we'd, we'd talk about. Um, uh, one is um, the unexpected past. Unexpected, I think, at least from certain American historical uh, perspectives, certain uh, traditional ways of thinking about uh, American history. Uh, two, our unwieldy present that that unexpected past has uh, uh, given way to. And, and then third, if we've got time at near the end, maybe a, 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 a brief or glancing reference to um, to what just might be our, our contested and, um, and newly complicated future. This is my vaccination card from just two days ago, um, which came as part of a, you know, to me, startlingly uh, competent uh, American public health response uh, here in a pop-up clinic in New Haven, um, uh, which looked like state capacity of a kind that I wasn't entirely sure Connecticut or New Haven would be able to generate. So maybe we can talk about that uh, near the end. Um, it, it, it won't come to as a surprise to any of you, uh, experts, thoughtful people in the um, uh, uh, history of epidemics, people who are interested in that, uh, this clip attributed to infectious disease specialists at the turn 
of the 21st century. The 19th century was followed by the 20th, which has been followed again by the 19th century. That is to say, we seem to be back in a moment of new and emergent uh, infectious diseases in which we have to deal with these, um, these problems. But the problems aren't entirely new. They're in some sense uh, age old. There are problems that humanity, uh, uh, modern societies, uh, dealt with at their founding and have continued to deal with until really quite recently. And that was part of the inspiration for writing a book on the history of the law in this space. Um, I should say at this juncture, just a digression, some of these slides are going to be screwy. I've been unable to figure exactly how to turn PowerPoint into Blackboard in the conversion process. Stephen was heroic in trying to help me. So um, a number of the slides are screwy. You rest assured that the PowerPoint versions are sublime. Uh, and these will work. We'll, 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 we'll work our way we'll work our way through. Um, so uh, one of the uh, uh, central features of, of the book, already my slide management skills struggling. There we go. So um, uh, see two two schools of thought uh, in in the history of states and legal regimes on the one hand and epidemics and pandemics on the other. The first school of thought we could call it the epidemics make states point of view. Um, states they think black death. I have here a Peter, great Peter Baldwin book. Uh, contagion in the state in Europe, uh, 19th, early 20th century. But the Black Death uh, uh, might be the um, uh, the paradigm case for this. Uh, the pressure of epidemics reproduces, uh, produces and reproduces new state formations by sheer force uh, outside of the um, uh, the legal tradition. Sheer force, almost like meteor from outer space. Um, one extreme version of this view that's worth noting um, would 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 be the view that epidemics produce radical novelty in states and in legal regimes. You might think of those uh, famous dictums, salus populi, suprema lex, the supreme law of the state uh, is health of the people. Uh, and in that idea, or in a Carl Schmitt-like state of exception version of it, there might be the idea that epidemics produce a kind of clean slate uh, um, uh, on which public health authorities remake worlds in response to new contagion threats. Um, second view, uh, and really quite uh, different, at least quite different from the, um, the, the radical version of the, um, of the epidemics make states view. Second version is uh, states make their own epidemics. Um, uh, here, uh, I associate this thesis with Erwin Ackernecht, um, whose view was that prophylaxis is a continuation of politics. As my colleague here at Yale, Frank Snowden, has observed, the germs we get are the germs that evolve to match our social structures. Um, uh, and although it's certainly true that epidemics have been moments of openness to change, even radical change, sometimes terrifying change, that's in substantial part because our traditions are open to many interpretations and contain many strands. Um, what I'm going to do here in this lecture is pursue this second thesis to think about the ways in which our traditions, our state structures, our state institutions have shaped and constructed the paths by which our legal systems have the, the, our legal systems in the United States have responded to um, uh, to epidemics over time, with an eye towards uh, COVID COVID nineteen. Um, two legal regimes in U.S. legal history. Um, this slide would have. Uh, um, slowly rolled out rather than being a sea of text for you. So for, forgive the, um, 
uh, forgive the formatting, but essentially uh, um, uh, two different legal regimes in the literature uh, uh, in this space. One, a set of quarantinist regimes uh, associated with authoritarian states. Second, a set of sanitationist regimes uh, associated with States. And the, the thesis that I try to run through the book as a first draft of the history in this space uh, is to suggest that the United States has had a mixed legal regime or two legal regimes. One is sanitationist domestically for white people and elites. The second has been quarantinist uh, and especially at the borders for non-whites and for the poor. And I'll try to um, persuade you of, um, of this as we move uh, as we move through over the coming minutes. Um, a place to start would be to drop into the middle of the 19th century into uh, you know, a now virtually forgotten field, the jurisprudence of hygiene. Here I've got a, uh, an important mid 19th century text by a US Army surgeon named John Billings. Um, and the, the field of the jurisprudence of hygiene took as its project the idea that every member of the community is entitled to protection in regard to his health. His liberty and his control of his property, these are Billings' words, are only guaranteed to him on the condition that they shall be so exercised as not to interfere with the similar rights of others. Now you could hear in that a kind of standard 19th century liberal political uh, proposition, but it was connected to, in the United States, a powerful theory of state authority to, to manage and regulate society uh, as against the risk of diseases. One of the high points for this is the Massachusetts Sanitary Commission that writes a report in 50, uh, starting with that Ciceronian proposition, Salus Populi Supremo Lex, uh, no person, said the commission, liveth to himself alone. Now the, the Massachusetts uh, Sanitary Commission report of 1850 didn't have at its heart a kind of uh, radical emergency powers uh, idea of the sort we might associate with 20th century, uh, certain 20th century uh, political traditions. Instead, it had a kind of liberal, let's call it liberal community, com liberal communitarian ethic. Every person, wrote the commissioners, has a direct or indirect interest in every other person. We are social beings, said the commission, bound together by insoluble ties. So you can see the kind of interdependence, the, the, um, the, the social connectedness that, uh, that epidemics and the risk of infection brought out for 19th century uh, public, law, uh, public health law thinkers and, and, um, and actors. And I call this a kind of unexpected tradition in large part because it runs radically opposed to hoary old ideas about an American libertarian 19th century. This is not a model of thinking about individuals as isolated, atomized, free actors. Instead, it focuses first and foremost on connectedness and interdependence. And how could it not in a world of, um, of really extensive and significant infection risk? The principal uh, among those risks uh, in, in waves in the middle of the 19th century was the risk of cholera, but cholera is not alone. I think you've had Catherine Oliverius, the amazing uh, young historian at Stanford, uh, Lied on really uh, quite heavily, and her stories about the huge toll of yellow fever uh, in 19th century um, uh, New Orleans uh, and elsewhere. But yellow fever, cholera, smallpox, the the risk of of infection and really devastating infection was omnipresent uh, in the 19th century. And so it shouldn't be a surprise then 
uh, that American uh, prudes developed a jurisprudence to deal with that to deal with that problem. Cholera uh, pr produced in the United States uh, the first great what I want to call sanitationist response. Um, by local and state authorities. Sweeping sanitary provisions in cities across the Northeast, uh, the East Coast, uh, into the Midwest to fend off cholera, things like street cleaning, removal of, removal of nuisances, the banning of animal carcass disposal uh, uh, by burning or by dumping in rivers, disposal of waste, all of the things that are classic parts of the modern city, many of them, of course, pioneered uh, across the Atlantic uh, by, um, uh, by people in London and elsewhere uh, in, in, in Europe, um, but, but adopted here uh, in the States too. Uh, in the United States, these are described as core features of the so-called peace power which offered sweeping powers to states and localities uh, and which were um, sweeping powers that were after all indispensable uh, for flourishing social life uh, in times of epidemic. Um, uh, the sanitationist reform project produced things like the New York City's, New York City's Municipal uh, Board of Health. Uh, it, it helped produce things like tenement reform at the of the 19th century and into the early 20th, and its focus was on lifting up, lifting up uh, living conditions, uh, and in that focus, it produced uh, the, the, the prospects, the possibility of lifting up all uh, rich and poor alike. It had a communitarian, liberal communitarian, as I've tried to suggest, ethic uh, at its at its heart. There's a quarantinist counter tradition, though, that runs all the way through American history. This is the first uh, quarantine that I could find uh, in the post, uh, first record of a quarantine that I could find in the in the post settlement um, uh, in post settlement North America. Um, here are the town records of uh, now Tony Easthampton uh, out in the um, the wealthy suburbs of New York City, uh, an order that no Indian come to town uh, into the street. Uh, until they be free of the smallpox. And in this, in this uh, quarantine order is the you know, one, one starting place for what becomes a long, uh, long tradition of, um, of more aggressive confining and disciplining of, of, um, of the bodies of non-whites uh, non uh, and other outsiders. Uh, one place we can see that is uh, on Hoffman Island in New York Harbor, where in the late 19th century and early 20th century, immigrants from Europe uh, found themselves at, the, the, at the, the, the edge of the nation state formation and found themselves put behind fences uh, until they cleared, um, uh, until they were cleared for arrival uh, in, in New York. Hoffman Island is the East Coast version of this, but Angel Island, uh, in San Francisco Harbor is the West Coast version of it, uh, with uh, with Asian would-be Asian migrants to the United States. On the southern border, um, a long tradition of uh, really strict and, and draconian immigration controls for uh, Mexican laborers moving uh, to the north. This is an image in 1942 of Mexican contract workers undergoing inspection after being sprayed with pesticides. And that, that uh, practice went on for, um, for decades. And the quarantine power at the border 
uh, Hoffman Island in New York, Angel Island in San Francisco, or here uh, on, on the Mexican border, was upheld repeatedly through the 19th century and is connected to a long and ugly tradition of entrenching and reproducing existing inequities here at the um, here at the at the border. Not just outsiders or racial others. Uh, uh, the, the, the working poor, largely Irish Catholic, uh, treated um, by uh, with some of the same forms of state authority in the 19th century. Cholera era condemnations pictured here um, widely were thought to target Irish and Catholic immigrants. Um, this is an image of the burning of Mexican village in Los Angeles after one of the last great uh, bubonic plague outbursts, outbreaks uh, in, in, the United, in the United States. Um, an entire neighborhood, uh, largely of Mexican Americans, was uh, essentially burned to the ground. Um, during the Civil War and Reconstruction, uh, a brutal uh, outbreak of smallpox, which has been all too uh, little paid attention to by American historians until really quite recently, uh, produced widespread uh, uh, disease and death among the recently freed slave population. It may have killed nearly 100,000 freed people uh, in, just, in just a few short years. Other examples here um, include the, the infamous Tuskegee syphilis experiment, a, a, a multiple decade uh, long a dreadful experiment in which African-American men who suffered from asymptomatic syphilis were left untreated, to, left untreated, essentially lied to about uh, whether they were being treated to see the etiology of the disease in their, in their bodies. Or think, for example, of um, the widespread uh, um, ignoring of HIV AIDS in the 1980s in the United States uh, and some of the early failures of actual property law to, um, to deliver, uh, to deliver um, uh, meaningful, meaningful responses. So alongside the longstanding sanitationist tradition, there's been this uh, uh, equally powerful quarantinist one uh, as well. Now, now we're into a period, a moment here where the slides are going to be especially screwy, uh, so I apologize uh, for that. Um, but what I want to observe is that so far I've talked to you about a long tradition of robust state power uh, to protect the health and welfare of the people, sometimes a power that worked in sanitationist fashion and sometimes in quarantinist fashion. But there's also been in the United States a long tradition of judicial engagement uh, with the problem of government power in pandemic situations and epidemic situations. Um, this is a, a kind of hard to see version of uh, uh, a, an 1866 report from, uh, from the Metropolitan Board of Health uh, in New York. Uh, it's by the, the solicitor for the Board of Health, the lawyer, and he's reporting that this first year has been excruciatingly difficult because the operations of the board, this is the diagonal language, uh, the operations of the board have been cramped and thwarted at every turn by what? By litigation and by the courts. Uh, um, uh, cases include, um, uh, let me try to catch up with this awkward slide structure here. On the top left, uh, a New York Supreme Court decision overturning a quarantine imposed by local officials on Staten Island. Um, uh, the health department versus um, versus Knoll is a court striking down health department monetary policies is beyond the department's authority. Markham against Brown uh, on your bottom left there, hidden in part 
uh, is a, a Georgia decision blocking the building of smallpox hospitals by reading the authorizing statutes of the state of Georgia narrowly. And then here, uh, mid, mid, mid right, uh, uh, is a court allowing trespass actions against local officials who exceeded narrow, what was really a narrow reading of public health provisions. Uh, so we have here a series of court decisions, and, and these are just representative of a whole blizzard of court decisions that the Metropolitan Board of Health and other similar agencies around the country had to deal with. Um, here's a, a, another one. Here's a, a court uh, authorizing damages actions uh, against um, uh, against uh, uh, um, the quarantining of a vessel that was thought to be longer than necessary. And sometimes these kinds of judicial interferences with or managements of uh, public health authority took the form of constitutional uh, decision making. Uh, out on the West Coast in San Francisco in 1900, there was a feared outbreak of the plague, which produced a set of quarantine and inoculation orders targeted exclusively uh, Asian uh, Chinese population. Uh, and the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit uh, struck down e each of those orders, the inoculation order and the quarantine order, on the grounds that they had the Equal Protection Clause of the United States Constitution. So we've got a long tradition of judicial involvement, let's call it, with, um, uh, with public health powers in the United States. Um, that long tradition, in some sense, culminates in Jacobson against Massachusetts, a case that I want to talk about um, uh, both both now and then again a little bit later because it's come under a considerable uh, assault over the course of, of the last year in our current pandemic. Um, what's striking about Jacobson is that the 19th century tradition of judicial engagement with questions of public health rarely, if ever, stepped so far as to forbid certain forms of state authority uh, uh, under the police power in moments of epidemic or pandemic. No constitutional rulings in the 19th century set out individual rights as trumps over state power. Instead, all of those cases, that blizzard of cases that I just gestured at, uh, but, but we could talk about for a long time, um, uh, a few slides ago, all those cases channeled and directed state authority uh, in ways that allowed the police power to move forward if enacted in the right way, according to the right procedures and in the right And those cases in some ways stand for what I think is the deeper tradition in the 19th century law of American public health, which is a general recognition of a broad authority in the state to enact what the U.S. Supreme Court uh, called in a leading 1824 case called Gibbons versus Ogden, health laws of every description. And that's the core of the 19th century uh, uh, legal tradition in the United States, is a broad police power upheld by uh, the courts uh, when push came to shove. And that tradition culminates in Jacobson against Massachusetts, decided in 1905 uh, in, in an opinion by Justice John Marshall Harlan, whom you can see here uh, on, uh, on, on screen left, a screen right, our left screen, screen right. Um, uh, this case is argued, um, uh, just um, it is decided the same week that the case of Lochner versus New York is argued. Um, uh, for those of you who are uh, um, devotees of American constitutional law in the early 20th century, Lochner is the great 
or infamous libertarian opinion of the early 20th century American Supreme Court. But here in Jacobson, what the Supreme Court of the United States does, per Justice Harlan, uh, is, uh, is uphold Massachusetts's mandatory smallpox vaccination law, uh, a law that had no explicit carve-outs for adults on grounds of health uh, or, or, or religious uh, scruple. Um, it, it's, a, it's a broad smallpox mandatory vaccination law holds it. And in the course of upholding it, Harlan uh, gives a vision that's a summation of a century or more of police power jurisprudence for the age of epidemics. Liberty, he says, doesn't import an absolute right to be freed from restraint. People are subject to restraint for the common good. Society would cease to exist if it were otherwise, and disorder and anarchy would follow. Real liberty, and that's Harlan's phrase, real liberty uh, for all couldn't exist if people were free to act regardless of the injury that may be done to others. So Jacobson is a kind of extended prose poem uh, of the sort that um, uh, the judges write uh, for, the, um, uh, for the project of the 19th century public health police power. Uh, oh, let me see if I can, there we go. So. Um, Jacobson has come to stand uh, for um, what, what public health uh, lawyers have come to call the tragic view of civil liberties and public health. Uh, these two things on the tragic view, civil liberties and public health, are at odds with one another and have to be balanced. We can't have our cake and eat it too, and that's a tragedy. The modern era, however, has brought um, a, um, a, a possibility uh, into uh, American public health law. And I think public health law really uh, across, uh, across the world, at least across the Atlantic, uh, North Atlantic world, um, the apparent victory of medicine over disease seemed to offer to really a generation of public health lawyers in the latter part of the 20th century and into the 21st, um, a new, if uneasy, synthesis of public health and civil liberties. Leading experts on public health uh, began to take the position that public health and civil liberty ran together. We call it a new synthesis or a new sanitationism. Our leading authorities on public health began to resist things like quarantines or other forms of robust, aggressive state power that seemed to be at odds with civil liberties and instead observed in phenomena um, uh, like HIV AIDS, the ways in which civil liberties could be a pathway to even better forms of public health. Building trust uh, among vulnerable populations was actually, on this view, a better way to manage public health than imposing harsh constraints or, or uh, either real or uh, um, a metaphorical cordon sanitaire. Um, the leading public health scholar, Wendy, uh, Wendy, public health law scholar, Wendy Parmet at Northeastern Law School, uh, called this the end of the tragic view of individual rights and public health. Um, a whole slew of uh, books and articles about health and human rights were part of this, um, were part of this, this move. Us a little closer, at least, to our unwieldy present. And I want to talk a little bit, and here I don't know that I have any um, special expertise, except in so far as I can trip patch together some of the things we're seeing going on in the world around us with some of the history that I've described in part to you here, but that appears more generally in, 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 the, in, in the book. Um, 
so far, um, I've told you a story uh, of police power producing conception of a trade-off between public health on one hand and individual rights on the other, often, usually in the Jacobson mode, decided on half of public health with consequences good, sanitationist or bad, quarantinist. Um, I've described the emergence within the lifetimes of some of us on this call, one of us old folks, uh, presumably there's some younger uh, in, in the, um, on the call, um, the emergence in, in, in my lifetime at least, of a distinctive and hopeful new view of uh, new view that rights autonomy on the one hand could be made to run together with public health imperatives. So we wouldn't have to choose between the two. Um, this is, it's fair to say, I think, in our current unwieldy present uh, is under assault from multiple directions, and that's what I want to um, uh, talk a little bit uh, a little bit about now. Oh, well, let's let's start with this one. So, uh, um, uh, all, all, first, um, new surveillance technologies. One of the the uh, striking features of this pandemic. It won't be a surprise to any of you. You've watched uh, watched it emerge uh, along, alongside um, alongside me, alongside others. Is the rise of new technologies for managing and surveilling populations. Uh, Huge public health successes in countries like South South Korea, um, uh, Singapore, um, China have produced uh, real questions about surveillance of populations and the management of populations in combating disease. And these successes uh, have run squarely in the face of some of the some of the new optimism in what I've called the new sanitarian synthesis. Um, these are new ways of controlling populations that seem to hold new promise for managing the problem of disease. They seem to hold the promise of managing disease without the same kinds of participation and trust by populations, uh, by, by the populations in question. So that's one assault from one direction uh, on, um, uh, on that new sanitarian synthesis, uh, a new form of quarantinism. Um, at the same time, uh, we've seen here in the United States uh, uh, powerful, uh, powerful trends read that resonate with the long history of disparate impacts uh, on vulnerable populations. Uh, we've had terrible disparate impacts uh, on uh, the incarcerated. After all, the United States has between two and three million people uh, incarcerated at any given time. And has now for some uh, for some decades. Uh, one in four incarcerated people in the United States uh, has been infected by uh, um, by SARS-CoV-2, um, uh, as compared to one in ten in the population as a whole. Age-adjusted death rates among the incarcerated are far higher than in the population as a whole. Um, similarly, uh, age-adjusted uh, um, uh, uh, disproportionate death rates have taken place among Black and Latin communities. I think I think this slide is going to work here. Yes, you can see here. This is a very recent study by the um, by the American Center for Disease Control, the CDC, um, that has crude and age-adjusted uh, death um, uh, percents of COVID-19 deaths uh, um, uh, uh, by by race and Hispanic origin. And what you can see on the top row there is that unadjusted uh, for age, um, death percents of deaths more or less track on to percents of population. But once you standardize for age, 
uh, it, all of a sudden, percents of death, um, percents of deaths uh, are, are radically higher among uh, um, uh, Hispanic populations and non-Hispanic black populations in the United States and lower uh, for non-Hispanic white populations. More evidence of new quarantinisms in the U.S. experience of COVID-19 uh, um, have included disparate impact on the so-called pandemic precariat. Uh, this is uh, an effort to reach class effects uh, in the COVID-19 pandemic, um, effects that we've seen across 19th and 20th century, uh, the, the 19th and 20th century law of epidemics, but show up again in our COVID-19 moment. Uh, and, and moreover, a wave of violence uh, against Asian uh, Americans that's been excruciatingly in the news uh, over the last few days. One uh, feature I want to bring out about um, uh, these new quarantinisms um, is that in some ways they've made a new departure from a tradition of quarantinism. The, the images I showed you of 19th, early 20th century uh, a state authority uh, you, um, uh, exerting various forms of really distressing authority uh, came from the state, the state putting up fences at the border, uh, uh, the, the state engaging in something like a, the Tuskegee experiments um, uh, or, or, or the like. Some of the new forms of communism that I think are most striking about the um, early 21st century COVID-19 experience have been ones in which various forms of private arrangements in the liberal market economy of the United States have produced exclusions, have produced uh, new precariousness, and have um, uh, produced real risks uh, for populations of the kind that was um, uh, historically been associated with authoritarian state action, and now it, it appears in the form of, um, of private exclusions. So, so far I've tried to tell you that the new sanitarian synthesis of the late 20th century um, uh, is being threatened by a new set of quarantinisms, of really a diverse array of kinds, uh, uh, ranging from new surveillance technologies that can be deployed by the state to, um, to new private forms of exclusion uh, that have produced all sorts of pandemic era injustice. Um, uh, at the same time, though, there's been uh, a new surge of individual rights claims uh, in, um, uh, in American law over the course of the last year. On the US Supreme Court, here entirely shrouded by state Supreme Courts right and left, but buried back there is the US Supreme Court, which has really led the way over the course of the last oh, six months or so in asserting new forms of individual rights claims as against public health authority. Um, it, just before uh, the United States' Thanksgiving in November, the US Supreme Court uh, enjoined enforcement of New York State, the New York State governor's COVID era regulations for religious gatherings uh, on the grounds that it violated individual right to free exercise of, of religion guaranteed by the US Constitution. Um, uh, the, the, court, um, uh, the court's decision came along with a really striking opinion, uh, concurring opinion by Justice Neil Gorsuch, uh, which pitted that the individual rights of uh, religious, uh, religious adherence on the one hand, as against the overweening, uh, mistaken, uh, arbitrary and capricious and indeed discriminatory policy 
uh, of public health officials or so-called discriminatory uh, positions of public health officials. What was striking to this historian of 19th century, uh, the 19th century experience was the way in which Justice Gorsuch, another uh, concurring opinion by um, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, uh, had much the same, uh, much the same uh, approach. Uh, Justice Gorsuch uh, dismissed the, any number of important public health distinctions that might have sustained the uh, special rules for religious gatherings that might not have been required for the array of consumer and business settings, uh, which, um, which New York's had allowed to continue with larger numbers of people. It was easy for public health officials to see that certain kinds of conduct like extended gatherings, singing, rituals involving uh, considerable interpersonal contact, that all those things are characteristic of religious gatherings in a way they aren't for the kinds of simple consumer uh, um, uh, settings that Justice Gorsuch raised over and over again to suggest that, that the New York State's law uh, discriminated against religion. Just a few weeks before um, the Cuomo decision in November, uh, Justice Samuel Alito, uh, also of uh, the US Supreme Court, uh, gave an address before the American Federalist Society describing COVID-era regulations as, um, as, as radically out of step with a long tradition of American governance um, and attributing those regulations to the administrative state, uh, which in his story was a threat to um, to, uh, to individual liberty and to a long tradition of individual liberty. And for both Justice Alito at the Federalist Society and Justice Gorsuch in uh, the Cuomo decision uh, in November, um, uh, the, um, uh, for, for, for both of them, um, the, uh, uh, these new regulations cut against the of, um, uh, of, of individual freedom uh, going back uh, to, an imagined, to an imagined kind of founding. And both of them found room for criticism of the Jacobson decision for 1905, uh, which, which um, uh, the two of them, and I think any number of conservative jurists in the United States, are now moving to narrow and cabin uh, as much as much as they as much as they can. The U.S. Supreme Court hasn't been alone uh, in in this regard. There have been a whole raft of uh, conservative legal organizations who have mobilized to challenge and push back on public health regulations in our time. Uh, they've had considerable success in places like the Wisconsin Supreme Court, that's the, uh, the empty, the empty court, courtroom uh, on the upper right, uh, and the Michigan Supreme Court uh, on, the, on the bottom left. The Michigan Supreme Court's decision um, especially striking in that it struck down as an unconstitutional delegation of authority uh, a 75-year-old Michigan statute uh, delegating the power, uh, power emergency powers to, um, uh, to, the state's, to the state's governor. Um, so what I've got for you now in our unwieldy present uh, is a combination of forces, some bringing forward new forms of state authority in the form of surveillance technologies, new forms of, of power in society in the form of uh, uh, private market exclusions, uh, impacts. Um, at the very same time, we're seeing a new surge in the United States of really unprecedented rights claims against um, as against public health, public health law. Well, one way to see the extent to which these new rights claims are unprecedented uh, is that if we look for evidence 
of the 1918 influenza epidemic in the pages of the federal reports. The federal reports gather the decisions of the United States uh, federal district courts and the United States um, uh, and the United States court, circuit courts of appeals. We'll find, by my count, only one case, only one case decided in the early 1920s, allowing the state of North Carolina to um, allowing counties within North Carolina to ban traveling shows. The the the, the paucity of a serious litigation in the 1918 flu epidemic uh, is really quite striking as compared to our own current moment. Well, what about um, what about the, the the future, which I promised to try to get to uh, by the end of our time here? Uh, it's always dangerous when historians start to talk about the future, but I do want to say a couple words. Um, there are some respects in which, in the United States, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic has brought out uh, a new set of social rights, um, a rights that have been enacted in legislation over the course of the last uh, last year. Things like rights to healthcare. I mean, at this pop-up clinic in our privatized American healthcare system, um, uh, my health insurance status mattered not at all. What mattered was that I be um, uh, was that I uh, you know be of the right age group in Connecticut under the rules to get vaccinated. Um, and this was uh, American public health state capacity. Uh, being delivered through the public rather than through uh, the market. We've seen any number of measures to stop evictions uh, in the United States, both out of um, uh, Washington, D.C. and also in the states, so new housing rights uh, on offer, uh, certain efforts to provide new employment rights or at least substitute public forms of social provision uh, for employment uh, when employment uh, and, uh, and the job market interfered with private provision of, of um, of, of basic of basic means uh, of, of subsistence. We've seen, in other words, a whole a suite of new social rights uh, come out uh, of our experience here in the United States. Rights that really run at odds with that long hoary and I think largely imagined tradition, as I've tried to explain or persuade you of today, of a 19th century uh, and late 18th century uh, tradition of libertarianism um, uh, in, in the United States. That, that tradition, was simply impossible in the age of yellow fever, smallpox, cholera, and other uh, terrible uh, scourges. Um, it strikes me that uh, moving forward, our real question is: Will the part is how will the partisan battles um, uh, over over uh, policies in the months and years to come shape the meaning of of the new social rights that COVID-19 uh, um, uh, seems to have called forth? Will they just be temporary blips or will they stick in some important, important way? So some conclusions. Um, first, uh, um, uh, I think that the, the states make epidemics thesis, the Akronek thesis uh, that I started with at the outset, seems to me by this uh, a story to be largely vindicated. Public health law is substantially shaped by existing legal and political institutions. Um, the United States has a long tradition of state capacity for sanitationism, uh, for engaging in uh, real public regulations uh, for the good and also uh, for reproducing inequality, inequality in new and old forms of quarantinism. Um, there is on board right now, in places like the US Supreme Court, a new legal and political challenge to that tradition. I say political because the court's actions have been 
a hand in glove with a new partisan polarization uh, in, in the United States that's supporting, sustaining, and pushing forward those new, uh, new rights claims as against, uh, as against public health uh, traditions. And, and last, new signs of a possible coming social rights synthesis. Those are the, the, um, the major features of the story that I've uh, tried to tell you today. Um, which brings me to the end. Uh, I think we've got some time left for questions. I hope, I hope my kind of race through with my awkward uh, jury-rigged uh, um, uh, slides uh, worked out okay. I'm happy to, um, to take questions and engage in conversation. Love to know what you all think. Jason, thanks so much, John. That was uh, super, super interesting. So uh, as we've just said, uh, we have time now for a brief Q&A. If you have a question, please either raise your hand and share your video and audio when I come to you or post your question in the chat. Uh, we have a, yes, uh, Damien Shanks. Damien, are you there? Okay, we'll have to wait for uh, Damien to either ask the, question, the first question or for someone to post a question on the chat. I have a question of my own, John. Um, I was wondering whether you thought the uh, disjointed and fragmented initial response to COVID-19 in the United States emanated either more from deep-rooted legal structures, the delegation of responsibility over public health to state and local authorities, it's obviously a, a tradition in uh, US law, or from the Trump administration's own incompetence in the contingencies of 2020 itself? It's a great, uh, great question, Stephen. Um, uh, my own sense is that if you could imagine a world without the Trump administration, we still would have seen the principal responses coming from state and local officials. Um, uh, I, I think with the, the traditions of, of the allocation of authority in pandemic situations in the United States are such that we, we would have seen uh, governors and mayors uh, playing a, a front and center front and center role um, we also have for sure seen different kinds of federal coordination um, uh, one of the conversations going on in the United States right now I think about uh, all this is um, you know on the one hand an array of public health experts saying observing understandably that a decentralized state-by-state -state approach um, uh, makes little sense in a pandemic. My, my colleague Nicholas Christakis in the sociology department here likes to compare um, uh, um, uh, uh, a pandemic in, in um, managing a pandemic through federalism as allowing kids to pee in one corner of the swimming pool, but not the others. Uh, um, and so, so federalism makes no sense on his account. Um, on the other hand, uh, now suspending the, the, hypo the, the counterfactual that the Trump administration didn't exist, the Trump administration did exist. And so a, a, a centralized model entrusts 
all the authority to manage a, a, an epidemic pandemic to one set of actors at the center, you could think of federalism as a kind of insurance arrangement, hedging against the risks of, uh, of dysfunction at the center. So I, I don't know if there's a clear answer to that, but my sense is that as the historians of the future will look to the traditions rather than to the, um, the contingencies to explain mm, much of the allocation of authority at the outset. Great, thanks so much. So Damien has been having some trouble with his audio, but to post the question on the chat. So his question is, given the history of racial and ethnic disparities in US public health care, which I think helps explain the justified vaccine skepticism within minority groups in the US, in your research, did you find similar gender disparities? Uh, super interesting. And, 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 uh, and Damien references the, the infamous 1927 case of Buck against Bell. Um, which uh, upheld mandatory sterilizations uh, for certain um, for certain uh, women at the margins um, uh, in states around the around the United States as part of the the ugly early 20th century eugenics program. Um, I didn't in dealing with epidemics, so infectious diseases. I, I confess that I didn't find gender disparities in large part because public health law took on communities rather than individuals. Uh, um, the, the structure of the problem was community-centered uh, uh, um, uh, because of the way infections work. Um, uh, I think probably if we wanted to pursue that line, and maybe I ought to pursue that line uh, further, we might think about uh, things like um, sexually transmitted diseases um, uh, and efforts to regulate sexually transmitted diseases, uh, which ended up uh, um, I'm sure, focusing in often discriminatory ways on, on women's sexual freedom rather than on, on men's. Okay, excellent. Uh, so we don't actually have any more questions and no one has their hands up. Um, Okay, so I'll ask another one of my questions then, I have a long list. So um, my question is, uh, given the, uh, the sort of disparate responses of um, the US to COVID and then the more effective approaches, particularly East Asian countries like, you know, China obviously is the one that comes to mind, um, that have relied on uh, coercive state power and that's led to a, at least on the face of it, a better outcome. Do you think in the kind of increased uh, competition between China and the US, whether that will lead to a um, an argument for a more uh, sort of coercive approach to pandemics, or do you think that that won't play a role? So I'm basically asking, do you think that the context of um, foreign relations will feed into debates over civil liberties and pandemic responses? So it's a it's another great question in in part because you know one of the things I didn't um, touch on but but I've been ruminating about a lot is the relationship between emergency powers in a pandemic on the one hand uh, and and emergency powers in national security crises and um, uh, in American history we have uh, uh, the Supreme Court has upheld the draft the the the, the, the conscription of bodies for national self defense is a standard part of, um, of American constitutional tradition. Um, and, and we've now got a court that's veering in a different direction uh, with respect to the Jacobson tradition 
of, uh, of, of a similar authority to conscript bodies for pandemic emergencies. So these two different kinds of emergencies have produced, um, uh, are, are, seem to be producing now two different strands in American constitutional law. And, and I raise the, the draft because of its foreign affairs or foreign policy um, uh, relevance. Um, you know, it's been really striking the way in which um, uh, um, large swaths of, of American political life have um, uh, been proud to assert tradition, uh, imagined traditions that are extraordinarily dangerous, produce more infections, more deaths, uh, and have, have um, uh, um, you know, resolutely stayed the course even in the face of you know, now almost 600,000 deaths. Um, so I, I don't really know, quite know what to make of that pattern. Um, uh, and it seems to be resisting the pressure of better examples abroad. I think in part, uh, any number of people just simply don't believe it. I mean, I, I have colleagues who've, 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 uh, who are in East Asia now and describe having so many more freedoms than we in Connecticut, than we in Connecticut had just, just, a, um, just, you know, just a month or two ago. Um, uh, but I think it's not really imaginable uh, um, to, um, to lots and lots of Americans who are just living in a kind of... Um, with blinders on in some in some respects. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we have a question from Marcia in the chat. How can we use what we know of past precedents to change medical jurisprudence in the future? Mm -hmm. well, this is a really important question, and I, I've um, uh, I've started to try to write some things. I wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs in December, um, and uh, and and a piece in the American Journal of Public Health uh, that's just come out, and I guess a piece in the Times soon after the November decision. Um, by, by the Supreme Court. But, but my sense is that um, uh, really valuable and important public health authorities rest on an increasingly precarious foundation. And that foundation is a story about our history. Um, uh, on the one hand, um, uh, uh, important sectors of the U.S. Supreme Court, sometimes something like a majority, are telling a story about American history that uh, imagines a world without the scourge of epidemic that was actually our, our real experience from um, uh, from getting to the country and before uh, to um, to something near the something near the present. So so Marcy, the answer that I'd give is is uh, doing as much as we can to, in the United States at least, where we have our own distinctive version of this problem. Uh, and I know less about about the UK and and, and elsewhere, but but telling the story over and over again of a history of looking out for one another, a history of the Massachusetts Sanitary Commission, the history of the New York City um, Municipal uh, Board of Health. Now, of course, the huge power that those institutions had came with discriminations, right, and came with really ugly pieces, just as the power to conscript people into national self-defense comes with ugly pieces and comes with discriminations. I think I don't, I don't, one, one doesn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, though. That is, it's absolutely crucial to have these forms of authority and to try to exercise them intelligently, responsibly, morally. Uh, but, but, but abandoning them altogether seems like a kind of suicide pact to me. 
Excellent. So we don't have any more questions in the chat and no one else has raised their hand. So I think that's a logical point to end. Uh, it just remains to be said, thank you so much, John, uh, for being with us today, for taking the time to give such an interesting and informative lecture. Thank you to the audience for attending. Thank you to everyone who's come to one of these lectures over the last three weeks. This is the final one, so there won't be one next Monday. Uh, thank you all and have a good rest of your evening. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, everybody.